Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, clean techers, we are back with the sixth, the sixth episode of the Clean Tech Podcasters Roundtable. We are really fired up to bring you this post RE plus panel. We got some folks who were there and some folks that weren't there and that's all good, but we're really excited to have um, everybody on here for, uh, I think the velocity discussion, because God knows that show, if it did anything, it showed us that we got a lot of momentum behind us. So that's, it's really cool. And um, I'm going to just introduce our, our, um, our first panelist. I'll let everybody else kind of introduce themselves, but I'll just, as I often note here, when we convene the editors, we really enjoy a, a, a breadth of their view, but when you get the podcasters on, not only are they a little bit more conversational, but they have depth of view, and it's really awesome. So we're really fired up to have this group here. Um, Bill, I'll let you introduce, and then we'll just kind of we'll, we'll just go around. Uh, Bill Nussie, uh, the host of uh, Free Energy Podcast, and also book by the sa- author of the book by the same name. We are all about local energy. Marie. Hi, Marie Berquist of GRD Solar and co-host of the What's Up Podcast. Mr. Uh, Red Headphones, COVID boy. My name is Nico Johnson. I am the founder and host of a podcast called Suncast. Uh, I'm the CEO of a company by the same name, Suncast Media, which just produced uh, three days of live broadcasts from the show floor with our esteemed co-panelist here, Julia Piper. And uh, I love all things media that have to do with the clean energy transition. So hopefully you guys can tune in at some point to the Suncast podcast, if in fact that's not what you're listening to this on right now and some replay. <laughs> all right, Ms. Piper. Hello, Julia Piper here, host of the Political Climate Podcast with support from the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and Canary Media. Um, during the day, I'm VP of uh, Public Affairs at Goodleap, a clean tech financing company. All right. And that fellow from uh, Illinois, what, what's his face over there? <laughs> Flyover Country. Hi, I'm Tim Montague, host of the Clean Power Hour podcast, brought to you by the Clean Power Consulting Group. And uh, I am a day in, day out solar developer and solar consultant, in addition to being an avid podcaster. And uh, it's great to be here. All right. So, podcasters, a week, uh, we're, we're a week after the trade show. I'm going to leave with our normal question. What are the three big trends you're now tracking at what makes them significant? Julia, you don't get to use the same answers you used last week on the stage. So. What? Yeah, I, you neither. So, anyway, I, I'm a, I'll give you two a little time to warm up. Okay. Let's, let's go ahead and start with Mr. Montague. Three trends you're watching, Tim, and why? Three trends? Oh, my goodness. So many. Well, thermal is the number one trend in my life. I'm getting so many wonderful guests on my show, like Rondo Energy, uh, that's making hot brick batteries using clean electricity and this tried and true technology known as the toaster oven. Um, so that's one trend is 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 uh, decarbonizing thermal energy with 
solar, wind, and battery storage. Um, agrivoltaics, second favorite trend, mind blown at RE+. I ran into a, a little company called AgriSolar Consulting, who showed me the AgriSolar Clearinghouse, which is a project of the DOE, well, funded by the DOE. Amazing, amazing resource for everything agrivoltaics, aka dual-use solar, right? You have a solar farm and then you graze sheep under it or you grow crops like spinach or strawberries or anything that likes a little bit of shade. Um, third trend, uh, hydrogen. Uh, love to see the electrolyzer companies at the show at RE+. And, uh, you know, you can make clean green hydrogen from something called H2O using photons. And it's it's a lovely way to do all kinds of things uh, like make green steel. So those are my those are my three trends. I just want to say I'm, I'm glad that Tim got to go first this time. Is that I fi you finally get to see Tim Tim shine and not have other people take his answers. That was good. <laughs> also, can we just note the transition to hydrogen being embraced by renewables is kind of wild. Like it wasn't long ago, everyone was, you know, ragging on hydrogen. Elon Musk mm -hmm. was not a fan. That's also because we were talking about it for vehicles, but right. the transformation in the dialogue is pretty wild. So great, great point, Tim. All right. Well, um, Josh Porter, uh, just so you know, your just wife, calls, she, she wants you to go back to Hawaii. So stop hanging out in L.A., the show's over with. Go back to Hawaii. I just want to let you know she called me right before. So, all right. But anyway, Bill Nussie. He's in the plane right now. He's on his way. That's a Korsky. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Right. Can you hear me okay? Hi, everybody. Unfortunately, we can hear you crystal clear. But uh, all right. <laughs> You're better with the mute button on. Mr. Nussie, the one master of the universe amidst our, in our, in our motley midst here. Go ahead, Mr. Oh, Nussie. trends. Uh, you know, we're all about local energy. And so I am incredibly excited that Sonova is taking a shot in the state of California to build a, a microgrid neighborhood. I've got uh, John Berger on my podcast in the next couple of weeks to talk, go deep on that. Uh, I'm super excited that California uh, is mandating the use of solar app. You know, there's a reason that uh, the same system in Australia costs a dollar ten US and three dollars in the US. Uh, and so solar app is one small but important piece to lower the cost of U.S. small-scale solar. And there's this uh, one little other tiny thing I'm kind of paying attention to a little bit called the IRA. It's a little law they just put in. And, uh, and, and you know, it's hard not to love hydrogen when the subsidies are so large that it actually takes gray hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen, makes it the price of gray hydrogen, which I'm all for, by the way. Um, but I think the IRA is phenomenal it was a it was a trick because no one realized in the business community that it was actually written for business people uh you know it's supposed to look like an environmental thing but all the business people i know are just out of their minds with excitement on what the ira means uh, and it's going to galvanize what the u.s does best which is you know get the private and the uh and the commercial sector to the public sector working together um and it's i think it's the biggest thing ever i'm watching it every day all right, Ms. Bergquist, we're slowly walking our way over to last week's panelists who don't get to use their same answers. So, all right, got that background from somebody that if, uh, if you're not talking, probably got to mute. All right, Ms. Bergquist, your top three. Yeah, uh, top three is uh, looking at storage and seeing a lot of the more mainstream brands coming into that space. So we saw Energizer, we talked with Kohler, um, and there's really flattening out like, who is getting into the, the storage solutions. Um, as Bill said, which maybe this is 
repeatable, but from a different aspect is the IRA is something that we are definitely tracking. And um, that is going to be influencing our purchasing decisions, you know, in our day-to-day. And then a big thing that we've seen, again, like Bill said, is the solar app, but just a lot of the software technologies that are coming out, um, notably, they are in the space of roofing or home construction, but now they've converted their platforms to allow and help out solar EPCs and solar installers. So those are the three trends that that I would say were takeaways and that we're tracking. All right, we're going to take it easy on Gil Jenkins because he just get, took a break from his afternoon happy hour to join us. We're appreciative, but we're going to go. No, over. no, 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 no. Technical difficulties on your end, but happy to be here. <laughs> I've been in the waiting room. Right, blame the host. Okay, fine. I'll, 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 be, I'll be the bigger one and take it. All right, Mr. Johnson, who's not going to use his answers from last week. Your three big trends, sir. Mr. Well, Jenkins. Or, or sorry, Mr. Johnson. Nico Johnson. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Nick. Well, it's good to see you, Gil. It is good to I see, see you, Nick. And, and I do want to just give a hat tip that you are a nod that you sound, you, you, your voice sounds beautiful and sultry today in that new studio equipment that you're rocking. <laughs> Thank you. I just think that it's it's amazing how uh, how you guys have taken a, a, a step up. In, All right, we, inter- uh, we in interrupt this geek fest to bring you some answers from Nico. Hey, Answer the All question, right. Nico. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna buck. Uh, I'm gonna um, basically say I don't care that Mike has said not to use our answers from before because as well, as we noted at, at the show, it was not a recorded session. So um, I'm probably gonna I'm gonna repeat it a little bit. Although I was kind of uh, endorphin and fueled for that session anyway. Uh, I think the thing that surprised me the most, and it genuinely, you know, Porter and I talked about this a lot um, in our daily roundups, that as you walk the trade show floor at RE+, the thing that stands out is that from the smallest mom and pop manufacturer to the largest conglomerate, every single company right now is thinking about home power, right? Not just solar on the roof, not just a battery in the garage, but how to capture the wallet and mind share of the residential predominantly residential homeowner for, for everything uh, re- related to their electrified home. And so you see it from the usual suspects from, you know, solar edge and SMA and, and in phase to all of the module manufacturers, Canadian solar introduced uh, a new battery system uh, at the show and uh, across the board, it's, you know, LG is back and really focused on their home battery system. Well, I say is back because they shuttered their U.S. module manufacturing plant earlier this year. Um, or not their, yeah, their, well, their U.S. team and their, and their module team altogether. So that, I think, is a trend worth watching because it, homeowners are going to continue to be just as confused as ever. And the thing that homeowners uh, rely on is... Uh, rem- the elimination of discomfort. And one of the discomforts in our industry right now is just simply not knowing who to, who, the, who the freak to trust. Like that's one of the things I think Energy Sage does a great job of, right? As a company, they help homeowners know who to trust. And they do it by presenting really good data and get, a good, get a good quotes for it. Hey, Porter, if you can mute, that'd be awesome. I think the feedback might be coming from your line. Um, and then I think the second one that I did mention uh, from the stage, and I'm going to repeat it because I think it's worth mentioning. For me, every conversation that I had from Fluence and AES all the way through to more than 25 conversations we had at the stage of the media zone was, uh, it came back in some way or other to batteries. And I think that batteries have finally taken front stage. I think that with 
the decoupling of uh, the incentives in the IRA, allowing batteries to be standalone incentivized um, as a standalone storage, the developers are going to flip the script. And I'd love to hear what Tim has, has heard from his developer friends through the week. But what, what I see happening is it just simply takes less, a lower, like a smaller footprint to, uh, to get permit and interconnection approvals for a battery storage system. Utilities need the battery storage system for a plethora. We could have, we could spend the whole entire hour on how, what kind of grid services batteries can provide. Um, and then once you've got that beachhead, as it were, as a development perspective, you've now got an interconnection point and you can kind of expand out from there with the difficult job of getting, um, of getting all of the interconnection, uh, sorry, all of the, the approvals required for the extra land to generate clean electrons from solar in outlying parcels from wherever your, your core sort of battery technology is, is cited. So I think that the trend we're going to see is a lot of developers who've already been developing storage along with their solar per, uh, portfolios are going to start developing solar along with their storage portfolios. And they're going to lead with storage first because it's just, it's easier and there's money set aside uh, for it. And then I guess my third is uh, kind of following Bill there. IRA is the story of the moment right now. And uh, I'm sure Julia will talk about the fact that in certain scenarios, you can get as much as 70% incentive uh, back on the system. And those are obviously like the most uh, aggressive edge cases, but it is possible to get 70% of the system cost back if you check all the boxes and put it in exactly the right location. And that's exciting. All right, Julia Piper. Gosh, I have to try and not talk about the IRA all the time because I'm so deep in it. Uh -huh. You can get 70% up to, up to 70%. I think I'm entering more so like the actual details mode where it's like, yes, but there are a lot of implementation things to still be worked out. There's a lot more details. That 70% case is really niche. I keep hearing about it, but you have to build a, a specific type of low-income project in a former coal community or coal mining site that uses entirely domestic labor and entirely domestically made content that does not currently exist. So just like to level set a touch, we have a lot of work to do, but it's super, super exciting. Um, so my three trends, let's see. So first up I wanted to highlight is broadly innovation. We talk a lot about deploy, deploy, deploy. I do not want to take away from that, but it's a little benchmark setting. The federal government in the U.S. only invested up until recently around $9 billion per year on energy innovation. That is less than a quarter of what it invests in health innovation, less than a tenth of what it invests in defense innovation. With the IRA, plus the Chips and Science Act, plus some other core foundational spending in the infrastructure bill, that's massively going to change. Like The U.S. has really revisited how it's going to invest in energy innovation. Just this week, we saw this $94 billion, or sorry, last week, a $94 billion multi-country announcement led by the U.S. and the DOE talking about investments in uh, deployment projects. So these are newer technologies that we need to test out, things in the hydrogen space, things in the advanced nuclear space, et cetera. So I think it's a new era for U.S. energy innovation. We talked about that on the Political Climate Podcast recently with Varun Sivaram, who's with John Kerry's office, uh, the U.S. Climate Envoy, and would encourage folks to check that out because it's a new, new trend I see. Um, another one is storms. You know, we're speaking right now as Florida's getting totally battered by a severe storm. And there's going to be a lot of stories coming out of that. Good, bad, otherwise. The grid needs to be entirely rebuilt in some portions of the state we're hearing. 
what role can our companies play and an industry play in helping consumers? Of course, we have to make sure you know safety is cared for first, but what does rebuilding look like? And, and not just in Florida, but Puerto Rico, potentially Cuba, other Caribbean nations that have been hit hard. So resilience remains a core theme and we have to make sure our technology does perform the way we talk about, um, but potentially an opportunity to step in and help here where uh, legacy infrastructure has not been working and encourage people to donate where they can, um, especially in, in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, finally, I would highlight jobs. Um, there was a recent report by the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA. They talked about uh, the fact that renewable energy jobs had reached 12.7 million last year. This is globally. Wow. That's up 700,000 jobs in one year. So I think that's 2020 to 2021, kind of looking back. And this is through the lingering effects of COVID, the energy crisis, et cetera. So almost 13 million global jobs in the clean energy sector and renewable energy specifically. So where that goes next is going to be super exciting to see. Um, again, the U.S. is stepping up on clean energy policy, but we've got a lot of competition. I think most of those jobs are in Asia. The EU is still a formidable you know, uh, you know, presence in the energy space. So uh, it's not a zero-sum game, but thinking about where those jobs are going to go and the opportunities ahead is, I think, exciting and, and good, something to watch. All right, Gil Jenkins, you're up, brother. Okay, the question is trends, three trends. Three, three, three big trends, and then we'll go to, we'll, we'll uh, have Josh Porter back clean okay. up. Because it, it, this is proof positive that Josh cannot stand the thought of losing the background competition. He always has to have the coolest background. So we're going to give it to him. Fine. Okay, so three trends. I, I, mean, I think like Julia, you know, in some cases, I think, you know, we're, there's so many questions IRA and I have a hard time not wanting to talk about it or analyze it. So still sort of feeling this after the great success and joy and passage of RFA and all the potential, now we're starting to get done. Well, look at all these unanswered questions. So while that's not a trend, it's it's certainly a, a focus, I suppose, for the industry. And if you'd asked me 48 hours ago too, I said, what the trend is, are we going to get the uh, permitting and uh, bill a sidecar deal that Manchin made in order to um, get his vote on, on the tax credits? We, we know the answer to that is no. Um, I think the question is, Will we get another deal like that in a lame duck um, period after the elections? Um, because I think, you know, the the feeling and the understanding amongst um, the clean energy community is that there's some great research as well you know, to really realize the full potential of IRA. We, we have to fix our, our, our broken grid and um, speed projects, particularly to enabling technologies like transmission for renewables. So, I don't have a crystal ball on that, but there's another really important policy period, I think, potentially this fall that we're tracking. Um, last, um, you know, kind of where we sit as a company, Anna Armstrong, we're watching, um, I think at some point, you know, we're seeing a, um, a consistent backlash to the concept of ESG, environmental, social, and governments, ESG investing. It's, it's all getting conflated into the culture wars. Um, you know, being called things like woke capitalism. And I'm watching this in part to see how lasting this backlash to uh, um, sustainable investing is viewed and how that interacts uh, in a, you know, potentially choppy time for the market uh, with a looming recession and, and persistent inflation. So kind of all over the board, policy, markets, uh, wonky uh, permitting stuff and and we all need to see Treasury guidance on the thing that passed in August as soon as possible. All right, Josh Porter, you're three. All right. Can you guys hear me and see me? Am I on? You are on. Fantastic. So uh, 
I mean, it sounds like you guys covered a lot of great ground there. You know, um, I saw some things at the show that got me excited. Um, I spoke with Brian Patterson quite a bit of Emerge Alliance talking about the hybridization of the grid. I uh, had some LG DC appliances at the Grid Edge Theater. And when I think about the potential of that, and one thing that got me really jazzed was he talked about the prospect of home DC charging of EVs. So you have your generation, you have your uh, perhaps hybridization, you know, AC and DC loads uh, and transmission, and you're able to actually charge like an EV at maybe a higher uh, power rate via DC directly. So things like that got me kind of jazzed. I also spoke with guys, you know, I'm gonna just stick with the tech because that's the stuff that's really chock full in my, in my head right now. You know, talking with guys like Lumen about really inexpensive load control approaches and then aggregating those and pre- performing grid services, but not just for people that have spent 50, 60, $70,000 on a solar plus battery system. And then, but actually, you know, anybody could for three, $400 buy the circuit level um, uh, plug, you know, basically load controls. And then he has a program where he aggregates that and he basically uh, is able to offer the utility an opportunity to, you know, shed loads uh, for thousands of homeowners, right? Easy opt-in, opt-out stuff. Uh, you know, participation by more people in the renewable energy revolution. I met some guys out there called Craftstrom. And they had a true plug and play uh, solar plus battery system under $5,000 for like, you could have it in an apartment anywhere in the world, right? So that's the type of stuff that I focus on. I know you guys covered a lot of great ground with with policy and, and some of the big mega trends out there, but those are the types of things got me really jazzed when I was at the show. All right, Josh, thank you. All right, we're not gonna just switch to just anybody take any question, uh, anybody answer any of qu- these questions here. So the RE plus trade show is in the books. I think universal view is that uh, there was a huge surge in attendance and a big surge in energy. My question is, was the energy that you heard or you experienced temporary or a permanent, a sign of a permanent shift? Maybe I want to take that. When you say permanent shift, do you mean, should we expect every RE plus for the foreseeable future to be 29,000 attendees? No, just like in terms of what I, my takeaway walking away from that show, I thought, you know, this really is the exclamation point on the end of the IRA sentence. Like it really is a big turn of the corner on a many sided building because it shows that we've got this immense amount of momentum within the sector. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece in recharge that aired that ran during the show that said, you know, beware of the ghost of Solyndra because we're now, we now have a 300. 170 billion disruption plan into the gas industry, and they're not going to just hand over market share. So they're going to we're going to have a cottage industry of consultants that are trying to monkey wrench the deployment of of the IRA's potential. And does that end up downshifting our momentum, or is is the velocity going to continue? The industry velocity. Mike, can I ask? I'd love it if you would, because you you made a point in the panel that. Julie and I and and Porter participated in that we echoed a number of times throughout the rest of the week last week. And it's, I think it ties really nicely to what you were just saying. Could you enunciate a bit the stakes of the game for the listeners right now in terms of just how outmanned, outgunned we are by the fossil industry? Yeah, I think so. the, The passage of the IRA was essentially a baton pass from the .gov world to the .com world. And that calls into question, are we ready to take the baton and finish the race? We're the, we're gonna, we're the last leg on the sprinting team. Are we going to win? 
And I have deep reservations about our ability to avoid a repeat of the Solyndra phony scandal, which was essentially a concocted PR stunt, the purpose of which was to collapse support among white conservative American men from 94% to 45%. And it basically pulled renewable energy to the culture war. It's just like Gil was saying that you know, ESG investing is being pulled in there. And it, once you do that, the point is that if you're a political football, bipartisan support isn't possible. And the dysfunction in the U.S. Senate, a permanent feature of government, means you don't get anything through. So the question I'm, I'm asking all of you is, is the momentum that you experienced last week in the industry, is it a sign of what we're going to, is it the new normal or was it just kind of a, a peak that is going to crest and go back down? Well, I feel like we kind of risked falling into the the trope and the division you're kind of describing by by sort of going down that road. A, a lot of clean energy companies are in red states. A lot of clean energy growth is in red states. Let's not maintain it as a have and for and have not. Um, it was true that the IRA was passed entirely by Democrats, but tax credits, let us not forget, have passed in past years on a bipartisan basis at the end of the year tax extenders for many, many years. They're not inherently partisan. There were some other elements of the Biden agenda that fed into broader politics. Remember, child tax credits were part of this at the beginning of the bill. So it's kind of a unique case there. But I think what's amazing is we have two more years of the current administration that's going to be doing that boring rollout work. And sure, there's a lot that has to be sorted out there. But there's then going to be some consistency. And in two more years' time, a lot of the country will be feeling the benefits of this bill. And by that point, it's going to be very hard to take it away, no matter who you are politically. It won't even be, we won't remember what the bill was called by then. It'll just be, my local business is growing, uh, the headline. And so I think there's a lot of optimism there. Um, do not want to undermine the politics of the day. and We can get more into that. I think what, honestly, what's more challenging is there's just pure business lens is getting through some economic volatility right now. We had a lot of companies that went public that are reevaluating their SPACs or other decisions they made to fundraise. We're dealing with a raising interest rate environment. Customers are feeling the pinch. There are supply chain issues. There's just some pure economic stuff that I think could set us back from where RE plus was a week ago, feeling really energized. And we could see just some pure industry plays uh, change what that looks like in a year's time. Bill, you're making your money uh, investing money. What do you think about that? You're on mute, my friend. I don't want to sound Pollyanna, but I think that this is the very earliest beginning of something that's going to dwarf what you saw at RE Plus last week. You know, the economics of solar and battery are unlike anything the energy industry, and I mean hydrocarbons and electricity, have ever seen. It's already crossed the Rubicon, so to speak. We've hit the tipping point. It's cheaper. Now, you know, in a lot of scenarios, batteries and solar together are still not as cheap as natural gas, but nobody anywhere is arguing that they're going to get cheaper. We're looking at, you know, batteries going from 150 bucks a kilowatt hour down to 40 bucks a kilowatt hour. And that's going to continue beyond that. And so most people agree the prices of solar and battery are going to go down. The rooftop solar is going to go from $3 a kilowatt. Uh, $3 a watt like it is now down to $2 or $1 like it is in Australia. No one's arguing that these prices are going to go down, but there seems to be an entire lack of realization when there is this much price uh, benefit that politics just fade away. Um, consumer sentiment 
ruptures for. This is the internet in 1995, folks. This is one of the largest economic disruptions in the history of humanity. And I'm not trying to be grandiose. I'm telling you that we are we are going to be like the people that were doing dial-up. All of us here today are the people doing dial-up modems on, you know, um, on uh, 512 wide CRT monitors, right? That's where we are today. And the difference is the internet had to be created from scratch because no one is spending money on it. What we're looking at is $6 trillion, the largest economic, the largest amount of money spent in the planet Earth for only two products, for hydrocarbon fuel and kilowatt hours. $6 trillion a year across the planet, somewhere between 50 and 90% of that is going to change where it goes in the next 20 years. There's, I mean, there's just this is two orders of magnitude larger than anything we've ever done in history. So yes, will the future RE pluses uh, be different? Will they be substantial? RE plus or whatever it becomes is going to be 150,000 people in 10 years. And we're going to wonder why we didn't see it coming. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher Energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. I felt that the verdict of the Trump years was that we had hit the inflection point when policy was now clearly less important than than commercial execution because the Trump guys were trying to monkey wrench our progress at every turn. In retrospect, I think they they didn't have the best crew. You know, it was a it's pretty clear you you had you know the it was the it was the white house of misfit toys and they probably weren't doing the best thing and i don't know the rick perry's going to win a mensa award anytime soon so maybe if we had a smarter set of bad actors we would have had a different verdict but i i i i don't know i it was you definitely came away energized from that show for sure hey mike all right mike may i real fast please yeah so uh, two things one I noticed on the show floor people that were coming into the industry that had never been there before, a number of people. And they would approach and say, hey, I'm just here checking things out. I think that's a really good indicator because people are obviously, I mean, we're in this world and we have our discussions and we have our predictions and, and, but there's people that are reaching out, trying to understand what's happening in this, the broader kind of community. And another thing you brought up Trump, I'm gonna tell you a real fast thing. I brought it up on the round table with Nico, but I, uh, I went to shoot the F-150 Lightning in Oahu about a month ago. The guy that was test driving it before me was wearing a MAGA hat, right? And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, no one's gonna tell this guy he can't have a better performing, cheaper truck that lets him have energy independence. 
that's a, that's like the Trump constituency, right? That fellow was there after that lightning, right? And that kind of encouraged me because I thought this is something that this energy tr- revolution is something that really unites people. And that's kind of the other side, the, the basic human level of what we're talking about on policy. I couldn't agree more with Bill in terms of the predictions. I think we're going to see massive. I think this is just the beginning of a huge increase in participation in this industry. And that show was a great example of it. I want to just really quickly tag on because um, I was I was going to say the same thing you did, Mike. Hey, Bill, what do you think about it? Because the first concern I had was, okay, great, all this opportunity and all these companies are going to come in. But the biggest constraint, the two biggest constraints for most companies trying to create anything right now are capital and talent um, and not an equal distribution. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear that um, that Bill has um, uh, an unbridled enthusiasm for the capital coming in. Um, I also saw another bill, one that um, will probably be recognized, Bill Gurley, uh, one of the folks from Benchmark. He said over the weekend, he tweeted, it's the best time in 15 years to start a, co- start a company right now. And he points to the uh, p- part two, the arbitrage with hybrid work and Silicon Valley having so many layoffs right now that there's never been a better time to pick up talent. And to go from what would have normally been stacking your San Francisco office to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars of, uh, of operating uh, long-term operating expenses um, to now having a distributed team. Like Tim is a really great developer. He lives and works in Illinois and works for a company based out of Portugal with us headquarters in Houston, right? Like that's the new normal for us. And Tim doesn't, he's not required to go in to Houston. So given that, we see unbridled enthusiasm for capital and we see a decoupling in the talent market of needing to be in a specific office. We don't need to talk about the politics of like whether or not it's more effective to be in the office or not. The reality is that for Silicon Valley in particular, for folks like Bill Gurley, they're saying it's the best time ever to start a company. And when you've got a huge bellwether like IRA saying, okay, here's some capital that's going to come in. You bet you every Everybody who has the inkling of an idea is going to jump in and try to start something. And that positions all the companies that have already been here, like Bill said a minute ago, very well to be recapitalized, to get great talent, to be acquired. We're going to see M&A. If we thought the last, and we did, for the last 18 months, it seemed like the most unbelievable M&A market we could have imagined. And it's going to look like peanuts in comparison when we look back 10 years from now. Marie Burquist. And one more thing to add, um, not to belabor the point even more, but two of you, Mike and Nico, both said the phrase new normal. And for all of us around this podcast, I myself have been in renewables for four years now. This is our new normal. But for Gen Z and the workforce coming in, this is normal for them. So Julia gave the statistic of um, an addition of 700,000 in workforce uh, coming in. And I just see that growing astronomically because this, again, just like Bill said, and it's so funny you use that analogy because I tell that to our younger um, folks on the team. Like we are at the precipice of the exact same thing that it was the internet boom. Um, And all of these folks are working in this in this industry, getting experience when newer companies are going to ask for 5, 10, 15 year experience and they're already going to have it. But, you know, there's just for Gen Z and our new workforce, 
this is their normal. This is what they live and breathe, sustainability, renewable energy. And, you know, that is a core value. And I just see this growing astronomically um, as we continue. Bill and Tim. So uh, I, I love the, uh, the, I think the question of workforce is really key. And I just wanted to make a quick comment on it that, you know, I talk in my book uh, a ton about the parallels with the internet and, and, and a lot of those have, a lot of people do that, do it. I don't think it do it justice and it gets dismissed. I think they're actually incredibly powerful if you go a little deeper. And one of them is on the workforce. You know, I used to run, actually it was the largest internet consulting firm in, in, in the time. And you'll love this. When you came to us, when Home Depot and General Electric came to us and said, we'd like to put up our first ever website, the minimum charge was $2 million. And I'm talking about something that would be embarrassing on Squarespace. I mean, something you could do in 30 seconds on Squarespace. And, and the people that could develop that were demanding, and this is 20 years ago, were demanding $150,000 a year. So think $300,000 a year today. These were people that just had some basic skills. So what the point of this is there was an arc of, of demand for expertise that was extraordinary, but very short-lived. And, and uh, so the punchline, don't start a, a staffing firm in this because in three years, you're not going to need it because, uh, you know, at first, the, then the price to create a website went down from 2 million to uh, 500,000 to 100,000 to 20,000. Uh, and, and then it became Squarespace, which there may not be an equivalent in solar, but the, 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 the workforce we need to focus on it. We need to galvanize hundreds of thousands of people. We need government support. We need innovators. But I don't miss a minute of sleep on wondering whether or not we're going to have a workforce to meet the demand. It might be, it might lag by three or four years at worst. Uh, but I think the workforce thing will take care of itself uh, very quickly. There's a shorter list of things that we should be concerned about. Workforce is not one of them. I just wanted to comment on that. All right, Tim, you're up. Well, I just wanted to, to riff a little on this workforce issue and the economic opportunity we have to remember that for every dollar we put into clean tech we get three dollars out of economic growth and the other the other foundation here is that our industry is actually 50 years old the the clean energy transition started in the 1970s the technology like solar was invented in the 50s so it's even older but but for all intents and purposes we're 50 years on and as Vaclav Smell likes to point out, uh, you know, these transitions can take 100 years, but we're, we're well into it. And, and so, yeah, we're, at the, we're still at the bottom of the S-curve, but baby, we are going vertical. And, and it is a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be a young professional, career changer, old professional, you name it. Uh, we are going to pull from all sectors of the economy. And and, uh, you know, yeah, there are there are industries that are struggling right now and the supply chain issues are real. My Ford Lightning has been on order for well over a year and Ford can't tell me when they can give Mr. Montague a Ford Lightning. So if anybody out there knows, let me know. I was joking, right. Porter. You can have you can have mine if you want, Tim. <laughs> well, and I'll just just a quick side announcement, Bill. You'll be you'll um, be interested to know we're actually going to start next month a third roundtable series with um, in cooperation with the Clean Tech Leaders Roundtable. We're going to have the Clean Tech Investors Roundtable. We're going to have three investors, and they're going to be tracking these trends. So it'll be kind of interesting to see. All right, so. Let me ask this question because I asked it on stage. Don't think any of us felt like we had a great answer for it, but roadblocks, 
Now we got five to seven roadblocks for realizing the IRA's potential. <clears throat> Transmission, storage, permitting. Number one block that uh, Princeton, Jesse Jenkins cited, and the Brookings Institution. Workforce development, mineral sufficiency and processing, supply chains and grid stability. How are we going to solve those problems and who's going to solve them? Floor is open. I would be remiss if I didn't point out in my religious zeal that every one of those problems is uh, solved except for the production of products by local energy. And so those things that that you correctly point out as problems to large-scale deployment of solar and wind and large-scale batteries, um, to the extent that the government was to do anything, even a tiny, teeny little bit to support the local energy growth, which they, to date they've done very little, most to nothing, um, that would, would be the most direct and uh, expeditious way to address all those problems. Um, stability, the lack of transmission, uh, but this is a, uh, local energy is not something that politicians yet see as a solution to all the problems that we ha we know we have. I think it's inevitable. The market may force them to realize it because it's cheaper and better and cleaner and faster. But um, I think this, we have the solution today. I wish everyone would talk more about it. Sorry, off my soapbox. Soapbox is fine. I mean, I'd echo that, but I also note that these are problems not created by the IRA or to realize the IRA's potential. They are solved in part by the IRA itself. It has funding in there for including Defense Production Act, which has minerals funding, it has domestic production funding for electric heat pumps and things like that as well. Um, but some of that is addressed in the bill. The infrastructure bill also had funding for, I think, transmission and distribution. So to the extent that's a problem, um, can be addressed in part by that bill. Um, so just sort of remembering these aren't necessarily new issues that have come up. I think if anything, we actually will make more progress on them because there's finally some dollars behind addressing them in a more strategic way. Good point. Well, all right. I'm going to go to a question that um, is your fault, Julia Piper, because you were the one who inspired, you were the one to give the best answer to this question. So I asked on LinkedIn earlier this year, can anybody name any elected official anywhere in America of any office of any party who's actually politically afraid of crossing the clean tech industry. We had a bunch of answers. I don't think any of them held up except Julia said, well, what about Ron DeSantis and his veto of the net metering bill in Florida? So that actually was such an interesting suggestion that we call, we, um, my colleague, Melissa Baldwin, who's <laughs> thankfully safe and is now trying to get the lights back on down at, and in Florida, she can be an entire panel that, um, that Zach Shahan at Cleantech Talk called a bunch of Floridian operatives, reporters, et cetera, and they unpacked that. The short answer is DeSantis was really looking for a Christmas ornament to dress himself up in a little bit of moderation. It was an advantageous thing, not a fear thing. The solar industry really didn't have the juice to bring any fear to a guy who's got $130 million in the bank for his reelection. But it was, I'll pose the question here. Does anybody know any elected official anywhere in America, any party that's actually afraid of politically crossing the clean tech industry? You know, <laughs> Go ahead. Well, Cricket, crickets. You know, um, Mike, I was like, when you think of, when you give this frame, I think of Machiavelli, you know, is it better to be feared or loved? And, uh, you know, it depends on the day. Um, but, I, but, you know, I, I'm struck by like, we live in a world where, um, Republicans are attacking Wall Street now. Uh, and they're not afraid of Wall Street, which is way, you know, way more uh mature and influential and subsidized, you know, and, and then perhaps our burgeoning clean energy industry or 
you know, you have the pharmaceutical industry, which came, was which was lobbying against the IRA provisions on healthcare to the very last minute. The number one trade associations in Washington, right? Didn't even make a dent. So I, I know up is down, black is white. I'm not sure it's companies or trade associations that are necessarily like, that, you know, any industry is feared anymore in the topsy-turvy political time we live in. I do think that um, on, on the broader question, you know, we, as we grow as an industry, there will be, um, continue to grow, there will be an attack. We can, we can anticipate an attempt to repeal parts of the IRA. I don't think they can go full bore in a scenario, let's say a 2025 scenario, you can imagine how it would line up. But the way I think it was structured, um, that it becomes tech neutral in 2025, the fact, as Julia said earlier, that you really start to see that big rush in 24, 25 in the volume that, and that it's already in red states, um, you know, there, there will be an attempt and we will have to push back and we have to fight it. And there may be an attempt later in the decade when uh, people see <laughs> how valuable this subsidy is for certain markets, perhaps. Um, I probably shouldn't say that, but, you know, that's, that's we're, we're maturing as you would expect any industry in Washington maturing. I, I think we had a lot of missteps the last decade. I see us fixing some of that. Uh, and we certainly got to do well the next two years on implementation. But um, I'm not as pessimistic on, on this frame as I know you've been historically. Mike, I, I don't know that you're asking the right question, really, Mike, because the fact is, is that Joe Manchin is playing ball and that shocked all of us. And and so, yeah, he may not be, quote unquote, afraid of clean tech, but he recognizes on some level that we represent job creation and economic opportunity that he wants and he understands that coal is a dying industry. His family may still be benefiting directly from the coal industry. My family benefited directly from the coal industry two generations ago. My grandpa Murphy ran the Black Diamond, a coal industry publication here in Illinois. And, and I'm proud of that. But things change. And, and so... Politicians of any stripe recognize that this is good for the economy and they want jobs. They want people in their states to be uh, employed and benefiting like landowners. Landowners love solar because they can triple their income. Yeah, it's not without some controversy because they don't really understand it. But tripling your income, who doesn't want to do that? Julia? Yeah, and I'd echo a lot of the points made. I'd also just add, you know, talk about topsy-turvy. I remember following some of the actual testimony on the Inflation Reduction Act. And it was Republicans opposing it because the EV tax credit was going to reward domestically made EVs. But a lot of their red states have foreign auto manufacturers who are based there and contributing taxes and building there. So they were like, this is a bad bill because it's too American. And we have other automakers who want to grow and invest here. And the argument was not, do EVs contribute to economic development? It was actually a fair question. How do we want to design this tax credit to promote greater investment in America writ large? And so that was a moment for me where I was like, we have just entered business territory. It's not politics. It's just business. Doesn't mean there aren't attacks. Like the attacks we're talking about from, say, fossil fuel sectors, that's kind of just business. It plays out through political channels. I don't want to say that it's not politics too, 
but it's kind of as we mature, we got to play a different business game. And that's where a point you've made, Mike, about the industry contributing politically, perhaps even across the political spectrum to invest in those relationships and tell our stories and talk about the impacts we do have and make sure politicians understand the impact we have beyond our current allies. Um, but we're kind of getting to that point. And now I do not want business to take away from local control, local um, ethics requirements and engagement. We can't just get so big. We don't pay attention to that. Our industry has a unique opportunity to get it right this time and not be so extractive. But nonetheless, I think when we're talking big dollars now, and that's both a good and bad thing, I, I think. All right. Gil Jenkins wanted me to make sure I asked this question because we put it on the list last time we didn't, but I think a lot of the listeners actually are going to find it interesting. What information sources do you routinely get your information from about clean economy? Mike Casey's LinkedIn posts. <laughs> All right. Venmo you 150. Yeah, okay. Suncast media. <laughs> Can someone provide a meaningful answer to this question? So in our, in our waning seven minutes here, I think what yeah, Mike yeah, I'll, is, I'll suggest, um, you know, I think like Julia, like I'm a, communications person besides being a podcast person. So I'm a voracious reader of all the amazing journalists in our, in our space and other podcasters. So I have to, I can't say there are any favorites, but you know, there's people like Rob Meyer from the Atlantic who I'll just read everything. I think he's got such voice and such clarity and I just appreciate the digestible essays on mm. complex topics in climate and energy for trade stuff. I like you know, I found recharge mentioned, uh, Mike, you mentioned that, you know, maybe more of a European tilt, but like really good trade coverage. Um, and, uh, and I'll think of another one, but I'm curious what others are reading or watching. How about you, Marie? What, what do you peruse? Yeah, a lot of my stuff is set like Google alerts. So, you know, sustainability, renewable energy, solar, GRE, those types of things. Um, and those really gave me the the Reader's Digest version every morning of, of topics to peruse. Um, one of the biggest resources, though, is the distributors that we work with. They have their ears to the ground with, you know, all the manufacturers and can give us information that we need to know about uh, to make decisions. So, you know, a lot of it is, is verbal and talking with fellow podcasters going to things like RE plus networking and just saying, Hey, I'm in the renewable industry. And you know, the topics kind of go from there. Nico. Uh, I wanted to clarify uh, for those who are searching as I am Rob Meyer on the Atlantic is known as Robinson Meyer, just for <laughs> any listeners who might be trying to find that. Yeah. Subscribe to his newsletter. Fantastic. There's so many newsletters, but his is great. Yeah. Yeah, I subscribe to a lot of newsletters. Uh, I mean, uh, Dr. Volt is one. Like, I, 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 it's hard for me to say where I get my information because, like everyone else on this panel, I have an incredibly unfair advantage in information gathering called a podcast. Like, I, I, I used to read a lot. Now I read a lot um, around the podcast guest, and uh, I just feel like I have an I have that unfair advantage. So my podcast is my unfair advantage. Um, I do listen um, to a number of other uh, industry podcasts. Um, I think that there are folks that do uh, a really great job. But right now in my COVID fog, I'm, I'm totally having a brain fart on it. Um, I, I, I think the traditional uh, industry ones, PV Magazine and Canary, 
uh, are always go-to for me. Like as soon as the IRA passed, the first thing I did was search Canary to see what they had said on it, search PV Mag to see what they had said on it. Um, I second uh, Gill Recharge um, is a tremendous resource. And that's re rechargenews.com for those folks that are also trying to feverishly figure out where that is because they haven't expanded their um, horizons beyond U.S. media. I think that that, if there's one thing that I would um, I would encourage folks to do is there are some great, uh, there are some folks out of the U.K. and Australia and uh, and Europe broadly that cover the industry that give a way better perspective on uh, what I said a number of times from the from the the stage at RE Plus is like this postcard from the future because they've already encountered uh, and overcome a lot of the things that we still are trying to figure out how to struggle through. And we've got sort of a lot of jurisdictional differences here in the U.S. So um, I think that that's, I'll, put that's, a, I'll put a plug in for Leslie Kauf on a Bloomberg Green. Uh, boy, I tell you, talk about getting around the country really well. Nice for very nice plan. Julia, we're going to lose you in a few minutes here. You want to tell us um, what your information sources are, the favorite, your go-tos. I'll give a plug for subscribe to wherever you live's actual newspaper. Get that. I live in LA, so I'm lucky we get the LA Times as my local newspaper. Shout out to Sammy Roth, an incredible reporter. Oh, yeah. here on our issues. Really good. We did a good podcast with him. Shameless plug there. But also get like the New York Times Sunday edition. Like read stuff that's not our sector. Like I'm like, yep. oh, the style section, other business elements. Like it's really good to bust out of this and figure out where clean energy lives in the broader world. Maybe I'm lame that I don't do that more often, but it kind of changed my life to like read the whole thing, get some perspective. Bill Nassie. PV Magazine and Canary. So a long-term thoughtful answers. Canary does a great job. PV Magazine is kind of the heartbeat for me. They've covered everything. They really need to change their names. Yeah, they do. All right, Mr. Porter. You know, just um, before the show, I got a hold of DNV's battery scorecard. And I like those like kind of approachable, maybe five, six pagers that you can kind of just get the facts on certain pieces of information. I mean, there's all the stuff that everyone else has mentioned. Uh, it sounds great. And I want to subscribe to some of those newsletters. Uh, but those kind of distilled down pieces of, of, uh, of reports, I get a kick out of and, and help me a lot in understanding where the opportunities are. All right. We are one minute out from uh, the end. Thank you, podcasters. I want to just thank you for doing these again and again. They're awesome. Hey, Mike. Uh, yes, sir. Before, sorry, before we wrap, Aaron Greeson made a comment that I think is very worthwhile uh, bringing up. The Climate Tech VC folks at ctvc.co. Yeah. Tremendous job. So thanks, Aaron, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the audience, live audience, for recommending that resource. Yeah. All right. Before we all go, I got a radical idea. If you like it, I say we figure out how we offline, we team up on how to make this happen. I say our end of the year, our next one, seventh one. What do you say we see if we can get Secretary Granholm to be the guest we all interview? Maybe up for that? <laughs> That'd be sure, awesome. why not? Thanks so much, Mike. Take care, Julia. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining. We, uh, we really appreciate you clean techers dialing in, and thank you, podcasters. You guys are great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Nico, for organizing. See you guys. Bye. Thanks, everyone.